Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Aesthetic Surgery Journal Open Forum Podcast. These podcasts are freely accessible on Apple Podcasts and through the ASJ Open Forum website internationally, representing the highest standard in aesthetic surgery education. I'm your moderator, Dr. Ryan Austin, and I'm a plastic surgeon in private practice in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. In the coming months, you'll also be hearing podcasts from my co-moderators, Drs. Mark Albert, Miriam Zamani, and Denise Sarhadi. Today, I have the privilege of speaking with Dr. Patricia McGuire from St. Louis, Missouri. Dr. McGuire is a co-author of the 2021 ASJ Open Forum video article entitled Breast Implant Illness, an Expert Panel Discussion on Current Research. And she's also an investigator on the ACER-funded study entitled Systemic Symptoms, Biospecimen Analysis Study for BII. It's so great to have the chance to talk to you uh, tonight, Dr. McGuire, and thanks so much for uh, sharing your experience and exposure with the ASJ audience. Thanks, Ryan. I appreciate the opportunity. So I, I'm really interested to know, how did you first get interested in, in this concept of breast implant illness? And, and what brought you to start looking at this entity through a, a more scientific and, and research lens? Yeah, five or six years ago, I started seeing kind of a steady stream of patients coming in, requesting to have their implants removed. And not just the implants, but also the capsule uh, from around the implant. Their contention was they had developed a wide variety of symptoms and no one could tell them what was wrong. They'd been to doctor after doctor, all the labs were normal. Nobody could tell them what was going on. And a lot of them found these social media groups where these patients were describing breast implant illness. Their contention is that the uh, implants are toxic to the body and whatever toxins are in the implant go through the implant capsule. And the only way they're going to get better is have the implant and the capsule removed. And I first started, I was rolling my eyes at they, these patients. I thought they were crazy. Then I found a lot of them got better. And I started wondering, are we missing something here? This was right at the time when the World Health Organization had designated breast implant associated ALCL as the fourth type of anaplastic large cell lymphoma. And I've been in practice since 1991 and 1992 is when the implant moratorium occurred so I've been dealing with implant concerns the 30 years I've been in practice. And we've been telling patients for years, there's you know, no link between implants and defined autoimmune diseases and no link to cancer. Well, now we had a, a true adverse event, a malignancy that was directly uh, um, associated with implants. And I think now we can even say caused by the presence of an implant. So I started thinking, well, maybe there is more to this. And I looked at the literature and most of what I found was slight associations uh, and no prospective studies. Most were retrospective. There were no control groups, no long-term follow-up. And a lot of what you read specifically on breast implant illness were opinions, um, you know, expert opinions, and there really wasn't any science. So that's when I started thinking, we have to get science into this discussion. That's fantastic. I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of people who are confused. And, and as you mentioned, that concept of ALCL and, and BII, it gets uh, kind of conflagrated. And, and, and uh, I think it could be confusing for, for patients and it can be confusing for practitioners at times. 
And in fact, you published an excellent article in the April 22, uh, or April 2022 edition of ASJ that's entitled A Practical Guide for Managing Patients with Systemic Symptoms and Breast Implants. And I have to say, this is really a must read for any plastic surgeon who is going to be performing breast implant surgery. And in fact, this, this article is being uh, featured as an upcoming, uh, in the upcoming April ASJ Journal Club. So, For the plastic surgeon who may be seeing these patients, just like you were, coming into their office with concerns of breast implant illness, what tips do you have for for assessing and properly working up a patient who's concerned that their breast implants may uh, may be causing some of this symptomatology? Yeah, the first thing um, to do is listen to the patient. Let them tell you what's going on. A lot of these women are very frustrated. They've been doctor to doctor to doctor. No one can tell them what's going on. And they're frightened. You know, they have these very troubling symptoms. Nobody can tell them what's going on. So they, you know, they may have gone back to the surgeon that did their original surgery that tells them, no, you look great. You don't need your implants out. And that's, you know, they, that's not what they want to hear. So you first need to listen, just like any um, new patient that comes in, listen to their story, listen to their symptoms. And you want to be sure they've had an uh, appropriate workup. There is no specific diagnostic criteria for breast implant illness. It's a diagnosis of exclusion. And you don't want to miss something really bad going on. Caroline Glicksman had a patient come in with really troubling neurologic symptoms that she did not feel comfortable operating on. And she sent the patient back to her primary care physician. And this very astute primary care physician examined the patient and found the patient had mercury poisoning. Nothing to do with her implants. It was because she went on this very strict pescatarian diet where all she was eating was fish and she had elevated her mercury levels. When that was treated, her symptoms went away. I had a patient that I do make sure they've had you know, routine labs done. You want to get a CBC, check their thyroid function, kidney function. And I had a patient in, in a routine lab work had an elevated calcium level. Ended up she had hyperparathyroidism. When that was treated, her symptoms went away. So the most important thing is not to miss something else that was going on. um, And then you operate on them and they don't get any better. So number one, listen to what they say. Look at what they've had, what labs they've had done before. If they haven't had an appropriate workup, you're not comfortable with them doing a workup. Send them back to their primary care physician or to a specialist to to try and figure out what's going on. That's, That's fantastic advice. And for those patients who do go on to surgery as part of their management for this um, entity of breast implant illness, um, one of the hotly debated topics out there right now is the management of the periprosthetic implant capsule. And you're a co-author of the article, uh, Impact of Capsulectomy Type on Post-Explantation Systemic Symptom Improvement, Part 1, which is currently available online ahead of print through ASJ uh, online, and I'm sure will be coming out in publication soon. So what can you tell us about how the type of capsulectomy that's performed on these patients undergoing surgery impacts their outcomes? Yeah, the study that we did was the first prospective blinded study with control groups looking at women with systemic symptoms that they attribute to their implant, self-described breast implant illness, against two control groups. We had women who had implants undergoing removal or exchange without symptoms they attributed to their implants, and women who've never had any implanted medical device undergoing a cosmetic mastopexy. We did symptom surveys, plus uh, the NIH validated uh, patient-reported outcome measure called PROMISE, for anxiety, uh, fatigue, um, cognitive function, and sleep disturbance before three to six weeks, six months, and one year post-op. 
on their day of surgery, we drew blood in the holding area, looking at their um, CBC. We did thyroid function, vitamin D levels, um, 12 different cytokines. And then we also looked at um, antibodies to bacterial toxins to see if there could be some subclinical infection on these patients. We uh, repeated the um, surveys after their surgery. And what we published was on the six-month data. And we had a 98% follow-up. There was a paper, wow. another paper that was done on um, symptom improvement after explant by Dr. Fang that was published, um, I think, a year and a half ago. And they showed symptom improvement, but they only had a 5% six-month follow-up. We had 98%. We're actually now at getting our one-year data. We have 90% follow-up from our breast implant illness patients. And what we found was that these patients' symptoms did improve. 94% of our patients had at least some improvement in their symptoms. And there was actually a 68% reduction in the total number of symptoms in this cohort uh, at six months. Now at baseline, they had much higher symptoms than both of the control groups. In both control groups, there was no statistical difference between them and their symptoms pretty much stayed the same after they had surgery. So once we saw, well, they do get better after surgery, then we wanted to know, that did the type of capsulectomy make a difference? In the operating room, when we removed the implant, we described the capsule and how it was removed. And what's commonly the patients refer to as on-block capsulectomy is they refer to is the removal of the implant and the capsule together. They feel that unless you get both out together and there's no holes in the implant to let the toxins from the implant get into the body, or if you leave any capsule behind, I mean, even a minute amount, that would, could preclude symptom improvement. So we classified um, capsulectomies as either a total intact. Uh, we don't like the term on block because that's actually a cancer operation. Mm -hmm. On block means removing... Um, the tumor or whatever the, um, if it's for a malignancy, plus a rim of um, normal tissue around it as a margin. In these cases, you're not removing a margin, you're removing the capsule. So we call those total intact uh, capsulectomies. A total capsulectomy is whether, when the entire capsule was removed, but not necessarily with the implant in place and not with the capsule completely intact. And then a partial capsulectomy, if any capsule was left behind, uh, we referred to that as partial. So we went back to look to see if the symptom improvement was any different between the uh, total intact, the total, and the partial capsulectomy. And there was no statistical difference between symptom improvement in the patients who had the entire capsule removed or partial removed. We had three patients that had complete symptom improvement. All their symptoms went away at six months. And of those patients, um, one was a partial capsulectomy and two were total. But we had several patients with partial capsulectomies that had significant symptom improvement. And I think this paper should be good news for the breast implant illness patients. We show that their symptoms do improve with symptom removal, but that they don't need a total capsulectomy. And why is that a problem? Well, it's a bigger operation, takes longer to do. If the implants are under the muscle, there's more complications, potential for pneumothorax, higher chance of, um, of uh, hematoma afterwards. There was a paper published in January in ASJ that showed that doing a capsulectomy doubles the risk of complications in a procedure. So um, this paper, we believe, shows that, yes, these patients improve with capsulectomy, but they don't need the entire capsule removed. 
That's uh, fantastic news, as you mentioned, uh, you know, not only for plastic surgeons, but I think for 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 these patients that we're going to be dealing with as well, uh, moving forward in the future to to know that uh, that there is an answer and that we can do it um, with with maximal safety. And of course, whenever we see part one in an article's title, it it gets us excited that there's going to be a part two and, and maybe even more. So what can you tell us about the next phase of your BII research? And do you have a sneak peek of some of the results that we may be seeing uh, coming out in publication soon? Yeah, you will see part two, which is um, the measurement of heavy metals in the uh, capsules of the implant was accepted for publication yesterday, actually. Great. So, uh, um, that was a result. We sent the uh, all of the capsules. We sent 200 capsules, two from each of our implant, the breast implant illness and the non-breast implant illness control group. We sent those capsules. Um, we removed that. We sent five grams of capsule from each implant to uh, Eurofin's labs. And it was very specific how you have to send this tissue. It can't touch any metal. We had to send them in special metal-free containers. We actually did some test runs because... We didn't know if they'd be able to measure in thick capsules versus thinner capsules. Uh, so before we sent these very expensive um, specimens off, we did a test run and we examined 200 capsules for the presence of heavy metals. That's never been done before. We looked all through the literature and we could not find anywhere where uh, heavy metals had been tested. And why would we test that? Well, if you go to the breast implant illness websites, this is one of the main th problems they think is that there are heavy metals. And the reason they feel that way is if you go to the FDA um, safety, summary of safety and effectiveness data for each of the manufacturers, there is a table that lists heavy metals with uh, amounts that are found in um, um, as residuals when the implants are, or the shells or the gel are subject to dissolution in acid or um, incineration, then they measure for any residual tissues. And most of these are in... Um, non-measurable forms or very low forms, but they list those on those sites as ingredients of the implants. So we thought, well, no one has ever looked to see are there heavy metals in the capsule. So we felt like that's something we should do. Dr. Roger Wickstrom is a PhD toxicologist who's one of the investigators in the study. And he and I have been talking about this for years. And it's one of the things we really felt like we had to do. We were very fortunate. We got the largest grant that uh, ACERF has ever granted to do this. And they actually gave us more money than we initially asked for because they wanted us to test for 22 different heavy metals. And each of those specimens was very expensive to test for. So uh, we sent those off and the uh, results came back. There were metals. We didn't know whether we would find nothing or anything. We did find metals in the capsules of the implants. Um, most were in, or all were in levels well below what's considered safe levels of exposure. And interestingly, we also sent tissue from um, control groups of just breast tissue women who never had an implanted medical device. And in most cases, there were higher numbers of metals in the breast tissue of the women who never had an implant. You know, we're all surrounded by environmental toxins, you know, all day, every day. So it's not surprising that we found um, some of these metals in the breast tissue. Wow. We did find that there were statistically higher levels of two um, uh, of heavy metals in the capsules of the breast implant illness patients, and those were arsenic and zinc. And I'll tell you, when I first got the call from Roger, I thought, oh my gosh, you know, maybe we figured this out. Yeah. Ended up, there was much higher, there's three times higher levels of arsenic in the breast tissue of women um, who never had an implant. Really? So we thought, well, where could this have come from? So we started looking at um, 
um, environmental factors and patient factors. And we found that the patients that had the higher levels of arsenic were uh, um, uh, more likely smokers. They were statistically more likely to, uh, both marijuana and cigarettes, they were more likely to have tattoos. And we know that tattoo ink contains heavy metals. And they were more likely to be on a gluten-free diet. The most, um, the biggest exposure that we all have to arsenic is actually rice. And the most efficient way for arsenic to be absorbed into the body is actually through the GI tract. So uh, um, these patients were seven times more likely to be on a gluten-free diet. So we feel it was probably the environmental exposure that gave them these higher levels, again, well below what's considered safe levels of exposure. And the zinc was easily uh, um, uh, explained because they were much higher levels of zinc um, that were take it, taken as a supplement. Well, that's amazing. It's uh, it's fascinating to to follow your work along and and to see everything that you've been doing. And it feels like with each new study, we get uh, we get new new answers and we get new questions. And it's and it's great to see you following up those new questions with new answers for us and for uh, for all the plastic surgeons and the patients that may be dealing with uh, concerns of breast implant illness out there. So. Uh, I'd like to thank you for joining us uh, here on the ASJ Open Forum podcast, Dr. McGuire, and for all the hard work you and your your co-authors and, and co-investigators have done and continue to do to help us plastic surgeons and, and all of our patients better understand breast implant illness. Thanks, Ryan. I appreciate it. And I encourage everyone to read Dr. McGuire's articles in ASJ and ASJ Open Forum. And make sure you tune in to see Dr. McGuire alongside Drs. Dennis Hammond and Bradley Calabrese at the upcoming ASJ Journal Club. Also, make sure you subscribe to the ASJ Open Forum podcasts in Apple Podcasts to make sure you keep up to date with all the latest content from ASJ.